Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. This episode of The Secret Library podcast is brought to you by Scrivener. Get 20% off the desktop software by using the code SECRET at literatureandlatte.com. This is episode 47. My guest this week is Cory Doctorow, who is a science fiction author, activist, journal, and blogger, as well as the co-editor of Boing Boing. He's the author of Walk Away, Out This Month, a novel for adults, a YA graphic novel called In Real Life, the nonfiction business book Information Doesn't Want to Be Free, and young adult novels like Homeland, Pirate Cinema, and Little Brother, and novels for adults like Rapture of the Nerds and Makers. He works for the Electronic Frontier Foundation, is an MIT Media Lab research affiliate, is a visiting professor of computer science at Open University, and he also co-founded the UK Open Rights Group. He was born in Toronto, and he now lives in Los Angeles. I'm really excited to have Corey on both to talk about information rights as well as his latest novel, Walk Away. So I think you're really going to enjoy this, especially those of you who are very curious about how people get an idea for a book and how it unfolds. Corey's really great at talking about that. So here we go with Corey. One tiny disclaimer before we start this episode. Unfortunately, there appears to have been a Mercury retrograde glitch in the matrix on my audio channel for this episode. And rather than deprive you of all the amazing information that Corey Doctorow shared, we decided to go ahead and release it anyway. There's been some noise reduction done on my side, but there's a bit of a crackle um, as I'm talking during this episode. So we want to apologize in advance for that and hope that you'll be patient and know that Corey is doing about 90% of the talking this episode. So hopefully it won't be too distracting. Thank you so much for your patience. Hey, Corey, thanks so much for coming on the show. Absolutely, my pleasure. So I'm really excited to have you on both to talk about Walk Away, obviously, but also to talk a little bit about your thoughts on the publishing industry. So I thought we could get into that as well. Of course. So let's start with the book. And what I wanted to explore a little bit, something that seems to come up recently, is this idea of books that feel extremely timely when they come out. But of course, that isn't when you first came up with the idea. The idea came sooner. So I'd love to go back to the beginning and and talk about where the idea for Walk Away came from. Sure. Well, you know, the idea has germinated for a long time. And it, it was really, I think, crystallized by reading three books in quick succession. So one was um, uh, Rebecca Solnit's Paradise Built in Hell. And if any, if any book was, was important for the gestation of this one, it's, it's Solnit's book. So Solnit's, you know, she's best known for having coined the term mansplaining, but she's also this very brilliant historian and writer of all kinds. And Paradise Built in Hell is a very closely argued history of how people behave in disasters 
and how we think we, they behave in disasters and how history records their behavior in disasters. And her thesis is that basically in disasters, people generally pour out into the streets and help their neighbors as much as they can, but that um, rich people are convinced that the poors are coming to eat them. And so they get in the way of this by deploying soldiers to stop uh, notional looting and so on. And that this elite panic is the greatest danger we have to disaster recovery. And since disaster is kind of the normal state of things, like everything eventually fails, you know, even the most perfect society is subject to exogenous shocks, this is really the most important issue in some ways that we have, because it doesn't really matter how well your society works. It's, it's how gracefully it fails. And this is the, the realization I had when I, when I read Solnit, was that utopianism is not the construction of a perfectly functioning society. It's the construction of a society that fails gracefully in the same way that making a really good car is not making a car that only has an accelerator and no brakes or, or steering or seatbelts. And so these, uh, this, this graceful failure became a kind of obsession for me. And um, after reading Solnit, I read Thomas Piketty's uh, Capital in the 21st Century, which is, again, another masterful, seminal book. It's very intimidating. It's 700 pages long. But I, I, I think people should read it anyways, if not, not least because it, there's a lot of repetition in it. You can really just read the first 100 pages and get most of the thesis. And, and what Piketty has done is worked with a group of grad students over a period, very long period, more than a decade, to assemble a data series that traces the flow of capital around the world for over 300 years. And his idea is that um, over time, the best way to get rich is to be rich. That, uh, that uh, over in the medium and long term, throughout most of human history, the rate of return on capital has always exceeded the rate of, of economic growth which means that even um, founding a very successful company or, or making something amazing will not make you as rich as just being rich. Uh, you know, he contrasts, for example, the fortunes of um, Bill Gates during the time in which he was um, starting Microsoft and then building it up to the most successful company in the history of the world uh, with Lillian Betancourt, who's the heiress of the L'Oreal fortune, who has literally never done a day's work in her life. And she made more money during that period than Bill Gates did. And then after Bill Gates retired and became a full-time investor and ceased to do anything productive and began to only just apportion capital to other people who were doing productive work, once again, he made more money than um, he made when he was starting the most successful company on earth by, wow. by just by allocating capital. And then the last one was this book by David Graeber called Debt, The First 5,000 Years which traces the history of money and shows that the story that we have about where money came from, which is that, um, you know, we used to trade cows for chickens, but it was really hard to make change. And so we invented coins <laughs> that, that this, that there's no evidence that this ever, ever, ever happened. And that in fact, all evidence points to the idea that money was created through the, um, creation of debt instruments. Like, uh, um, you know, you would have Kings who would create ledgers that showed, how much of your crops you owed, and then they would convert that to other kinds of, of items. Or, or more importantly, kings who wanted to put their armies on the march and didn't have the resources to feed them would tax their new subjects uh, with taxes that could only be paid in coins. 
and then they would give the soldiers coins in payment. And in order to get the money to pay your taxes, you would have to sell your crops to the soldiers to, to get the coins that you could use to pay your taxes. Otherwise, you'd be subject to you know, brutal capital penalties. And so these three books, you know, they, they pointed to a vision of a utopia that was not one in which we built the best society, but one in which our society came apart in a way that was, was hopeful. That, that made us think that in times of disaster, our neighbors could be relied upon. There's this idea in behavioral economics called the availability heuristic, which is the idea that it's easier to imagine something is true if it's easier to imagine it happening, that we overestimate the probability of things that we can imagine. You know, and that's why, for example, we, we tend to vastly overestimate the risk of terrorism and vastly underestimate the risk of dying in a car accident. And all of these lazy stories that we've all grown up on and enjoyed in which the lights go out and your neighbors come over to, you know, kill you and eat you. <laughs> this, this, this gives us a kind of intuition that that's what happens under normal circumstances, that a breakdown in technology is accompanied by a breakdown in civil order and, and civility, despite all the evidence to the contrary. And one of the things I wanted to accomplish with Walkaway was to tell a story that would create an availability heuristic that was about people turning to one another in times of crisis and saving one another in times of crisis. And so that's the story I tried to tell with Walkaway. It's an optimistic disaster novel about people who've been made obsolete by economics and technology and who've become a problem for society to solve instead of the reason that society exists and who walk away from, from this kind of oligarchical capitalism. And they go to the numerous brownfield sites where you know, industrial civilization has left behind ruin. And they use uh, automated technology and software to build amazing, elaborate, fully automated luxury communism. Uh, you know, buildings and inns and games and, and kind of all of this utopic stuff. And when whoever is the nominal owner of that brownfield site shows up and says, hey, guys, this is my property. You better leave. They just pick up and walk away and go somewhere else and do it again. Because when what you're making is built out of software, you can make it anywhere. Yeah, that is an amazing consequence of like the 3D printing technology mm -hmm. that I was struck with. Like, oh, they figured out how to print food. Yeah. And that that is sort of something you can play out over time um, in your head, which was kind of amazing. And, and more broadly that, you know, information technology is a kind of connective tissue for coordinating people's work and coordinating their, their um, other collective efforts. And so, for example, there's a whole group of people in this novel who were, are caught up in an airship bubble where there's all this investment capital that goes into building blimps, building zeppelins. And um, it, like all bubbles, it collapses and leaves behind kind of an overproduced uh, set of stuff that no one has no economic value, as well as people who know how to make and maintain it. And they realize that since um, they're part of this big network culture and they have friends everywhere, that they, they can just go up in these zeppelins and go where literally wherever the wind takes them. And there will be someone there that they can hang out with. And since there's nice people everywhere, and since the internet can find them, the people to hang out with wherever the wind happens to take them, they become this kind, these kind of like sky hobos who 
just just fly around having adventures and the, all like since since there are adventures to be had wherever you go they don't need to worry about hydrocarbons and fuel sources and prevailing winds amazing so one thing i was curious about while while reading it was the process of creating sort of the language around the culture in there you know there's so much fun terminology in there like how does that come to you as you're writing does it just show up and then you're like oh it's the zotto rich and keep going i was really interested in that language Zada Zada came from uh, you know before there was Bodie McBoatface there was an effort to uh, <laughs> to to pressurize the institute that comes up with the prefixes for very large numbers uh, so you know giga peta and so on they wanted to add hella for I think it was ten <laughs> to the twenty three so that would be a hella bite and so you know it just had the right it had the right sound Zada for yeah. a prefix that would indicate a very large number. And um, a lot of the other terminology I just stole from from Burning Man, uh, you know, calling calling the outside default reality. You know, there's this game that science fiction writers can play where you take a thing that already exists in the world, but is kind of off to one side and fringy, uh, but interesting and kind of magnetic. And what you write about it as though it were the central fact of life in some imaginary world. And then as that thing kind of kicks around and rides up and down the curves of the Gartner hype cycle from being, you know, very exciting to being, you know, discredited to being uh, institutionalized. People ascribe to you the invention of the thing because you wrote about it during its, you know, early 24-hour news cycle. And afterwards, everyone forgot that they saw it on the news, but they read it in your book and they go, oh, look at that. You predicted this. Uh, I call it predicting the present. And a lot of the stuff that's in there is, 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 you know, presentism. You know, I, I, I'm one of the editors of this website called Boing Boing. That's like a kind of technology and culture website. And I've always used it as a commonplace book. I take all of the little fragments of interesting stuff that cross my transom and I write them up for public consumption. And in so doing, I kind of fix them in my own memory. You have to give them enough thought that they become kind of lodged in the back of your mind. And they then kind of clump together. And, and you know, I like to think of like my, the, the, my hindbrain as a kind of super saturated solution of fragments of story ideas that periodically will glob together and like nucleate and, and then crystallize out into, you know, novels and short stories and whatnot. And, and so, yeah, a lot of the language and a lot of the tropes in that book, they came out of this, this long ongoing process. I, I, people sometimes ask how I research my books and the way that I do it is I research all of the things that seem interesting. And then I write books about whatever was most interesting. I don't start with an idea and go back and figure out how it works. I start with figuring out how things work and then get an idea. That makes sense. And then you're, you're not just writing, I mean, this is the first book you've written for adults in, in a number of years, but you've been writing for young adult audiences and you've also written nonfiction. So does it just come to you as a novel idea or you think, oh, this would be great for these people? And then you play from there because, you know, you've gone as deep as Information Doesn't Want to Be Free, which is a book like it's a very kind of practical manual. Well, yeah, I tend to... Uh... 
I tend to like get this idea for a project. So, you know, right now I'm writing a third little brother book mm. and, and I, I had the kind of shape of the book in my head. I wanted to write a little brother book for adults because uh, these, these young adult novels I've written, I, you know, the first one came out in 2008. And so the people who read that as 16 year olds are now young adults, uh, not, not young adults in the publishing sense, but actual adults who are young. And, um, they are ready for material that deals with the same themes and is maybe structured the same way. I mean, why, YA novels had this admirable, fast moving pace, but are ready for more kind of gravitas in the, in the themes and, you know, more sex and real death and all of the things that aren't necessarily part of a, a normal YA novel. And so having started there, I, you know, I, I, I stuck that in my, subconscious and started thinking about how that novel could come together, what parts it might have, uh, jotted down some notes and then started writing. And so, you know, that's what I was doing when you called me this morning. So it's a kind of iterative process. You know, you have the idea for formally what it will be, a short story, a novel, a nonfiction book. And then you have the, the substantive elements of it that are a mix of things that you know going into it and that occur to you, you know, connections that occur to you as you write. So when you said you just sit down and start writing, do you know how it's going to play out or do you find that out as no, you're I, writing? I find it. Yeah, I, I, tend to, um, I, I tend to have some set pieces that I know are going to go into it, you know, elements that I know are going to be part of the, the story or, or scenes, but I don't necessarily know how I'll get from one to the other. And my rule of thumb is, is just to... Um, find ways in which the character can try intelligently to solve whatever problem they're having, but fail through no fault of their own, such that things get worse, so they have a new, more intense problem to solve. And so long as that is, is always going along, the story will become higher and higher tension, the stakes will get higher and higher, and you'll eventually arrive at a climax. Are you ever like, oh my god, I can't believe this is happening while you're writing? Or does it, do you, how far ahead do you see as you're going? Sometimes, yeah. I mean, sometimes I'll have an idea that just seems to fit perfectly after after worrying that I don't really know which which way I'm heading. You know, one of the things that's really helped me as a writer was the realization that although there were days when I felt like I was writing really well and days when I felt like I was really, you know, just just producing terrible material, that in hindsight I could never tell the difference, uh, and that it had more to do with you know kind of my blood sugar. Uh, and my stress levels than it had to do with the quality of the work. And so that really liberated me to just write. But I, I wrote a novel called Someone Comes to Town, Someone Leaves Town that I started, you know, years before when I was in a hotel room having uh, had my parents come out and visit me when I was living in the Bay Area. And we went up to, uh, to wine country for the weekend. So I was in a hotel room, had this idea wrote down, you know, the first 10,000 words in a kind of white hot fury in the night and then forgot about it for years and years and went back and started incrementally adding to it a page a day over the course of about a year, knowing where I was going with the ending. And then I, I reached the, the ending and realized I didn't like the ending at all and didn't want to write it and took some time off and thought out a different ending and wrote that ending and then went back and uh, kind of turned the manuscript over to look at the first page because I, I thought, well, I'm going to have to rewrite the whole book now to match up with this ending I've just put onto it and realized that I'd foreshadowed it on page one all those years before when I was in a hotel room, you know, in a white hot fury. So that was really exciting. Um, it's, it's always interesting to find out that 
your subconscious knows more than you think it does. Yeah, that's amazing. I love those stories. Let's take a moment and talk about the show sponsor, Scrivener. One of the things we've talked about in the past are all the additional templates and resources available inside the software. And one that I want to share that feels particularly relevant to Corey's work with Walk Away, his novel, is the fact that you can create not only character sketches inside of Scrivener, but also setting sketches. And if you're creating a whole world like Corey is in his book with lots of details, settings, locations, different places where people are living, how things work, Um, mechanistics of kind of a future dystopian world, you want to make sure that that world holds up and is logical. So if you're keeping a lot of notes like this, Scrivener is a great place to do it and you can keep it right alongside your project as you're writing. So that's definitely a feature that's going to work for you if you're a sci-fi writer or looking at world building. You can get 20% off the desktop software at literatureandlatte.com by using the code SECRET. Okay, let's get back to Corey. So are you working on just one project at a time in terms of writing because you've got Walk Away coming out and then you're going back to Little Brother? So is it just sort of one idea at a time while you're working on Boing Boing and kind of correct, you know, connecting dots over there? Or how do you conceive Not really, the no. I'm, I'm working on a short story set in the Walk Away world right now. And I'm, I, I just finished some, some other short story projects as well. Uh, I'm writing nonfiction all the time, uh, you know, editorial work, policy documents. One of one of my day jobs is I work for a policy shop called Electronic Frontier Foundation. That's a civil rights, civil liberties, and free speech organization that works on electronic issues. And so I'm constantly writing for them, contributing articles and and all sorts of things. I've got a scholarly article that I'm I'm editing now that's just been peer reviewed. Uh, I do some some scholarly work. I was in the Public Diplomacy Center at the University of Southern California, and I'm uh, at MIT Media Lab, and also at uh, the Open University's Computer Science Department. So I, I'm always working on a variety of things. And um, I, I you know, and I started as a novelist. I was the European director for Electronic Frontier Foundation, and I went to you know 27, 31 countries in in three years. And I was on the road. I've worked it out an average of, of 27 days a month. I, I actually stopped plugging in my fridge. And, and I was still writing novels while I was doing that. And the way that I got to be able to do that was this, the combination of this realization that um, I couldn't tell good words from bad words. And so I should just write down whatever words I had and that I could fix them later. And also writing in relatively small chunks, but very, very regularly. So I write 250 words a day right now on each of the uh, the short story and the novel, but I never miss a day, ever. And things that are habits are things you get for free. The more you do them, the easier they are. And, you know, having habituated myself to this, it just kind of rolls out. Amazing. So let's talk a little bit about the issues that you're working on with the various day jobs. I'm, I'm really curious about your viewpoint because I know that you're really opposed to DRM and I, I want to hear more about your thoughts about publishing and how that plays out in working with, given that you do work with publishers. So how do you make all of that work? Sure. Well, I think DRM is, is a really problematic for a number of reasons, some of which relate to my life as an author and some to my life as a reader, and some to my work in wider policy issues. So DRM is like a practical matter doesn't work to prevent piracy. 
you know, even the most staunch DRM advocate will admit that it's easy to, to remove DRM. And so all of the pirates, they just download copies that have no DRM on them and they can do whatever they want with it. But DRM does create a lot of other mischief. One of the problems with DRM is that it's against the law to remove it, even for a lawful purpose. And so, for example, when Hachette, who own, you know, Little Brown and Orbit and all these other major publishers, when they had a dispute with Amazon uh, about how their books would be sold, Amazon would not allow them to release a tool that would give readers the power to migrate their Kindle libraries to a rival platform. And instead, Amazon held those customers hostage so that um, Hachette had to negotiate with Amazon and eventually just kind of lost their, uh, lost their deal and ended up having to cave into everything Amazon wanted from them. Uh, Random House went through the same experience not long thereafter. Because Amazon is the only entity that can authorize Amazon customers to, to read Hachette and Random House eBooks on uh, rival platforms, uh, Amazon can lock those customers in and basically force them to buy their libraries again or abandon their libraries to switch platforms. And for obvious reasons, this is really bad for publishers and more by extension for other rights holders in the value chain like authors. And given that it doesn't prevent piracy, that's pretty significant. Then there's the other questions about the equities and copyright. So copyright is a, it's a limited monopoly granted by governments. It, it gives rights holders some rights over works, but not other rights over works. There are lots of exceptions to copyright that are really important to authorship and to readership, uh, including things like the right to transfer a book. Uh, most, some of my most beloved books are uh, books that were given to me by other people. Uh, it's one of the ways that I discovered all my favorite authors. When I was young and becoming an avid reader, uh, I became an avid reader in part by buying used books. One of, my, one of the formative moments in my life was the first time I went down to this used bookstore in Toronto that sold uh, science fiction books. It was uh, used in a new store called Baca. It's still around. It's the oldest science fiction bookstore in the world. And at the time, uh, there was a writer working there named Tanya Huff, who's a, a very well-known fantasy writer. And I told her that I wanted a book, and, she, and I told her I didn't have much money. And I told her what kinds of things I liked. And she led me back to the used section, and she found me a $1 copy of H. Beam Piper's novel, Little Fuzzy. And that book really sparked a lifelong love affair with science fiction for me. Uh, so much so that uh, I ended up working at the store. When Tanya quit to write full-time, I took her job. And if it hadn't been for that used book, I don't know how I would have found my way in. So these foundational equities that are forestalled by DRM, like the right to sell books, the right to give books away, the right to lend books, those are, those are things that we lose at our peril. I think we are sleepwalking into a regime around books that is really without precedent. Uh, they, you know, there are these um, old monkish manuscripts that you can find in medieval libraries that have these warnings on the inside flap that say, if you steal this book, you will go to hell. You should make a copy of this book instead so that we can share knowledge you know, around the world. And that value of books being improved by being more widely read is at odds with these DRM constraints that uh, don't allow the traditional contours of copyright to shine through.
And so that's, you know, as a reader, I, I worry about that. And then there's the more wider social problems. So DRM doesn't work because for DRM to work, you have to give a person you don't trust a piece of software that has within it the means to unscramble the DRM files, right? So no one would buy a DRM ebook if they couldn't turn that DRM ebook into just a book they could read if it was just scrambled. And right. so that person has in their hands a tool that has all of the parts necessary to descramble the book and has been designed to just stop you from saving the book when it's been descrambled. So adapting that tool so that you can save the book is easy for the same reason that uh, opening a safe is easy if the bank will let you keep it in your living room. Because right. if you can keep the safe in your living room, you can subject it to the kinds of analysis that you couldn't subject it to if it were in the bank's vault. And every DRM system is always broken, usually within a matter of days, by amateurs using hobbyist equipment even though they're made over the course of years for millions of dollars by professional engineers, because you can't really hide secrets in equipment that you give to your adversary. And because once one person has decrypted a book and put it on the dark web or has figured out where the keys are in the client and made a, a reader that doesn't have these restrictions, DRM is break once, break everywhere. And so if the most powerful adversary you have figures out how to remove the DRM, all of the less powerful adversaries, the less technically knowledgeable adversaries can just ride on the, the knowledge that that person has, has developed, the tools that person has developed, or the books that that person has decrypted without having to know the secrets or have the technical knowledge themselves. And so the outflow of this is that we have banned telling people about defects in systems that have DRM. So in the US, there's a law called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act and section 1201 of it makes it a potential felony punishable by a five-year prison sentence and a $500,000 fine to disclose defects in systems that have DRM in them. And that's because if you know about the defects, then you can take the DRM apart and get the, get the book unscrambled or the movie or what have you. And the problem here is that we have left behind the era of dedicated entertainment technology devices. And software has, you know, as Mark Andreessen said, eaten the world. And so <laughs> your ebook reader is most likely your phone. And defects in your ebook reader expose you to having all of the workings of that phone turned against you. And since your phone knows everywhere you go, everything you say, it has a camera and a microphone that's potentially could be switched on covertly while you're on the toilet or in the bedroom. It knows what your doctor is telling you, what your lawyer is telling you, how to log into your bank account and so on. Prohibiting disclosure of defects in that phone is really dangerous. And since the, the, the law, the DMCA, does not distinguish among copyrighted works, manufacturers of other software-enabled devices have figured out that DRM is a way for them to get what they want as well. So for example, if you make printer cartridges and printers, you can use DRM to make sure that the printer uh, and the printer cartridge talk to one another and validate that the printer cartridge came from the original manufacturer. This isn't hard to defeat, you know? Oh yeah, so we're all familiar with this. This isn't hard to defeat because, you know, again, hiding, hiding secrets in equipment that you give to your adversary is a dumb idea. 
but it's a felony potentially to defeat it and can land you in jail. And so what we've seen is that manufacturers have figured out how to use this stuff to monopolize the parts, service, apps, data collection practices, and other dimensions of products that are as varied as insulin pumps, baby monitors, cars and tractors, uh, voting machines, and many other kinds of technology. You know, John Deere, when you when you drive your John Deere tractor around your back 40, the um, torque sensors and humidity sensors on the, on the undercarriage, they generate a centimeter accurate uh, telemetry map of your field that you can use to for seed broadcasting to optimize your seed broadcasting. But as the farmer, you can't access that data without breaking the DRM. If you want to get that data without committing a potential felony, you have to buy it back from John Deere in a package that comes with an app to distribute Monsanto seed, and that comes with Monsanto seed. And so this is a way to monopolize the whole uh, area around the, the device in a way that's kind of antithetical to how we think about property. It's ironic that this is pitched as intellectual property protection, but it comes at the expense of real property rights, the right to fix your own car or tractor or choose who fixes it or choose which ink you use in your printer. You know, there's, there's no reason that DRM couldn't be used with RFIDs to force you to use the manufacturer's approved dishes in your dishwasher or with a vision system to force you to use manufacturer approved bread in your toaster. And in the same way that it's a felony to remove the DRM from your eBooks, it could be a felony to remove the DRM from your toaster as well. There's no, no difference, obvious difference in law. Uh, although I'll, I'll add that Electronic Frontier Foundation, for whom I work, we're suing the U.S. government to invalidate this law because this is so far-reaching and has become such a, a menace. And the other piece of this is that security disclosures about this ever-widening constellation of devices are potentially unlawful and have thus been chilled. So the Copyright Office in 2015 held hearings and they heard from people who say, you know, I discover uh, vulnerabilities in the network stack of wireless insulin pumps that could kill people who wore those insulin pumps from 30 feet away. And my general counsel won't let me warn those people because we might be violating the DRM rights of the people who made the insulin pump. Or we discovered defects in these voting machines that call into question an entire election. And in this case, the researchers needed to get a special dispensation from the Ohio Secretary of State to disclose these true facts of enormous salience to the lives of millions of people uh, that are foundational to democracy. And so this is, this is the real danger to me of, of DRM. It's not just that it allows uh, platforms to monopolize the relationship with, uh, with readers or that it forecloses on the fair uses that readers and writers depend on, but that it actually has um, challenged the very notion of property itself as something that individuals can own as opposed to something that corporations own and that individuals license at the expense of our security and integrity at the most foundational levels. And then it makes me think of, of sort of the, the tension that plays out early on in, well, it makes me think of a lot of things, but it, it's calling to mind the moment in Walk Away when, um, I don't think I'm giving too much away here, but, but some characters do walk away, obviously. They would have to mm-hmm. for the story to move forward. But mm-hmm. um, they have their own personal property with them, are very worried about it, and there's a more seasoned character 
who re sort of remembers this experience and some of their property is taken and she says, well, you just kind of have to let go of trying to own anything. Um, so it's almost like there's an end of the spectrum where not having this free ownership could hurt people, you know, when you're talking about insulin pumps or, or tractors or things that could be dangerous. But there's also this notion of what ownership is in the well, first place. Well, it's funny. Yeah, you're right. That's a very insightful – I hadn't thought of it that way. But you're right. There's, there are these two uh, poles of, of this spectrum. And on one end, you have the people who say, you don't need property. Well, the corporations will have the property, and you can – just buy the usage rights from moment to moment. You know, this kind of everything is a service version of property rights. And on the other pole, you have the people who say, actually, you know, we're just going to have abundance. And so, you know, we'll, when you need a thing, you will conjure it forth from information and feedstock. And when you're, used, when you're, when you're done using it, it will gracefully degrade back into the material stream. And, you know, at either end, you kind of have an end to property, but with very different views of it. So on the first end, you have this kind of tenancy model. You know, it's feudalist, right? Where where there's an aristocracy that owns property that's limited liability corporations. And then there's a vast peasantry who use the property at the sufferance of the aristocracy in ways that the aristocracy specifies at a very minute level. And at the other end, there's just the liberation from all want so that you can get these new efficiencies with property where instead of, you know, having a garage full of things that you only use, you know, twice a year, you just, you know, whenever you need a thing, it just, it just appears and then vanishes back into the material stream. Yeah, I think it, it, it sort of boils down to identity in a way of who am I without my stuff? Yeah, well, and maybe who you are is your files, you right. know, or your, At this point, your, yeah. your, your data, you know, your history. I mean, this is one of the reasons that privacy is so hotly contested right now, because the impetus to log and track your life, it's a very old one. You know, it's um, the, the, the side of the Greek temple, it said, know thyself, right? And there's always been, at least since the Enlightenment, this idea that um, we are creatures of imperfect memory and imperfect reason, and that we need to imply, apply empiricism. We need to take notes and then review them later to find out what really happened because of this impressionistic nature of our memory and our reasoning that from time to time, moment to moment, we, we, we reason faultily, but we can get around those, those human flaws through these, these kinds of prostheses for our, our minds, these, these external systems that we can refer, refer back to. And, um, that impulse to want to write stuff down or log things is exploited by the platforms who write stuff down on our behalf, let us see some of what they know about us to our benefit, and then store the rest of it and use it against us, right? Try to use it to sell things to us. It makes me think, too, of the sort of upswing of interest in analog. You see so many record stores now, you know, and, and I don't even have a CD player in my car anymore. I couldn't even get one if mm -hmm. I wanted one. But and that this whole interest in there's a podcast about pens, you know, and mm -hmm. fountain pens and notebooks and stationery, which I am definitely guilty of obsessing over. I wonder if some of that comes from the desire of like the only thing that's truly private is something handwritten or something analog that can't be kind of decoded into data. So I, I dispute that in as much as cryptography is actually something pretty powerful and amazing. You know, um, with, with crypto, 
for the first time in the history of the world, really, normal average people can can keep secrets that only they are privy to or that they share only with people of their choosing. And unless they are physically coerced, no one can find out what those secrets are. So modern cryptography, it's so powerful that using your phone, you can scramble files so thoroughly that if every hydrogen atom in the universe were turned into a computer that did nothing until the end of the universe but try to guess what the key was to scramble it, we would run out of universe a long time before we ran out of keys. And that, that is a new thing. So there is this element of privacy. It's just about how it's deployed. I think maybe you're right that people have this urge to privacy, and that's why they are using these tools. But I think it's misplaced. I also think that there's this element that um, uh, when we make something that had formerly been the only game in town into one of several possible routes, that it's only ever used for the things that it makes the most sense for. So, you know, when all we had were puppet theaters and stages to tell audiovisual stories, everything had to either be squishable onto a stage or untold. And then when we invented the movie screen, suddenly there were a ton of stories that had formerly been told on stages that moved to the screen because that was the best place for them. And then there were all of these other stories that had never been told on stages just because they couldn't that moved to the screen as well. And then the small screen, you know, the TV did the same thing. It turned out that like not all stories wanted to be 92 minutes long. Some of them wanted to be 22 minutes long. And then YouTube came along and then, you know, binge Netflix came along. Turns out that there's a bunch of 14 hour stories that we'd never suspected. And I think that like when the ability to take notes is liberated from either writing it down by hand or, you know, typing it and is moved into, you know, making it electronic and kind of fluid and whatever, that there's a certain kind of note that remains behind that is very permanent and personal and tactile that is the handwritten note. And we use it, you know, we can find out what what handwritten notes were for by giving people the choice of taking notes that aren't handwritten. And what remains behind is what the handwritten notes are really for. Maybe that's why we're obsessing over it. Maybe the experience of you know, listening to a whole record and having the record there and having the vinyl and having the jack and all of those things, they tell you about a certain kind of musical experience that used to be the only kind of musical experience we had. So all of our musical experiences had a record in them. And what's left behind are the musical experiences that are best with a record. Because even people who are avid record collectors still have a phone and a set of earbuds and a ton of music. Yes. And I think it's the same with books. Like, we're seeing, you know, there is this availability and we thought, oh, ebooks are going to kill publishing and, and we don't see that happening. In some cases, I mean, it, you know, print books have gone up. So yeah. I think that's a little bit of that, what's left behind, like the love of a physical paper book. Um, I'm glad yeah. that we've ended up, you know, being that kind of society to go back to Rebecca Solnit. You know, it's like you think we're going to just chuck the book at the, um, at the advent of ebooks, but we certainly have not. Yeah, and ebooks are really interesting because, like, the things that have been unsuspected breakouts for ebooks are very, very short ebooks, very, very long ebooks, automatically generated ebooks, like a bunch of things that just weren't practical to put into paper. You know, they're, they're, I have ebooks that are thousands of pages long that are technical specifications that we mostly read through search and not through browsing. Wikipedia is a really interesting example of what happens when you liberate the encyclopedia from. Uh, even a whole shelf full of volumes 
when there's just no limits to the number of volumes, then you get something really qualitatively different. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I can't imagine. I remember those world book encyclopedias. I can picture them, mm -hmm. you know, and to think that that was the only access to what the world is like, it's kind of staggering to think of it now. Well, and there's, you know, this old trope in literature of the person who's read the encyclopedia. You know, Sherlock Holmes is said to have done it in the great brain novels by um, uh, John D. Fitzgerald, which are these great YA novels that are like uh, semi-fictionalized memoirs about growing up in Utah in the, uh, the turn of the 20th century. The titular character, the great brain, the, the guy's older brother, who's the smartest kid in town, has read the whole encyclopedia. And of course, that's not a thing we do now, nor is it a thing that you want to do. Now what you want is not to know all the facts, but to know which facts are there so that you know which search terms to use. Well, then, yeah, you think of A.J. Jacobs reading the know-it-all and uh, mm -hmm. reading the whole encyclopedia and how it made him an absolutely insufferable dinner guest. Yeah, um, exactly. I want to talk about the A's. I'm on the A's now. i got to talk about it. <laughs> it. It makes me think, too, was it Henry Ford who said, like, I don't need to know these things? I think he was in a trial, and he said, I know the people to ask. I've hired the people to yeah. ask. Yeah, well, and there's that John Chiardi uh, poem, the old crow is getting slow, the young crow is not. The one thing the old crow knows is where to go. Nice. Well, I think I could talk to you about this all day, but I, I think this gives people a good place to start in terms of definitely wanting to read Walk Away and seeing yeah. how that applies. So definitely do that because it's, it's quite fun. And also thought-provoking, and then also to start thinking about like, okay, well, how do I relate to information? What does this mean? Um, I think it's important to think about because it's easy to just relegate things to DR and like just to books, but as you said, like it can apply in many, many other ways. Yeah. So thank you for fighting the fight for us on that one. Oh, well, thank you, Caroline. And um, thank you so much for coming on. This was great. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Secret Library Podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading. Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads.